So this time I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I want to walk through a passage to you with you today about baptism and about the Great Commission. Have you ever been overwhelmed before with all of the, the challenges and responsibilities and pressures that you feel in life? And to be so overwhelmed that you don't even know what to do next? I've had the opportunity to talk with many brothers and sisters as a pastor, and uh, this is a common thing. It's, it's happened, of course, often during the pandemic as well, that in the midst of these challenging times, people don't know what to, to do. Sometimes brothers and sisters come to me and they say something like this. They say, I don't even know what to do next. I don't know what to do next. I think that's what, what has happened, no doubt, to the disciples in the few difficult weeks that they've experienced before the narrative we're going to study. I'll pull out just a few of them uh, that are obviously overwhelmed, not knowing what to do next. I think especially of one man, a one disciple by the name of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas had blown it pretty big time. He was disadvantaged. Uh, he didn't have the same opportunity as the other ten disciples in meeting with Jesus. And so Thomas responds with skepticism, fears to some very brash things, unless I put my hand, my finger in, in the hand or the side of Christ. He responds with skepticism, fear, and failure, and for an entire week until he's confronted by Jesus and he believes he's living in this way. I think that failure, I'm sure, left some lingering questions in Thomas's mind about what to do next. What do I do next after failure so significant as this? Or think of Simon Peter. He's also one of the 11, right? He lived in uh, the reality of his failure. He was pressured quite severely in the garden. And then again in the courtyard of the high priest's home, and he fails significantly. He fails on three occasions, right? And although Jesus comes to encourage him later, Peter no doubt wondered what God would have him do. Perhaps these two men or some of the other uh, 11 were thinking, I don't even know what to do next. Have you ever been there before? Perhaps during this pandemic, you've faced new challenges at home or work, and you're overwhelmed with significant issues. Sometimes I think it's, it's best to take a breath, take a step back, return to the basics, and ask this question, what does God want from me? And to answer that question, I think it makes sense to go to the high point, the apex of Jesus' first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew has been filled with uh, information about the actions and the sermons of Jesus. That's how the whole book is arranged. And everything in the Gospel of Matthew is, is pointing to the end, right? The, the trial of Jesus, the death and burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, as I look at this Gospel, there's really only one narrative after that, that, those climatic moments, and it's the one we're looking at today the Great Commission narrative. And so today, today, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to answer two questions that I think are related to what God wants from us. The first question will be, what does Jesus want us 
to pursue. And the second question is, how can we accomplish that? And so I want to look first at what does Jesus want for us? Look, at, look with me at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here, this is one of the most familiar passages in, in the Gospels. When we come to this text in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, I think we come to a text that has perhaps been more instrumental in sending people around the world to accomplish Jesus' vision than perhaps any other text in the Holy Scriptures. Now, near the beginning of this text, I think in verses 16 and 17, I just want to show you quickly, I think we have the setting of what's going on here. Here, Jesus and the 11 disciples had prearranged to meet on a hill somewhere in the region of Galilee. That's the setting. To this, around the central point of the Great Commission, Jesus puts two what I would call confidence builders. One is in verse 18. The other one is at the end of verse 20. Two things to build their confidence to fulfill Jesus' mission for them and for the world. The first, in verse 18, is that Jesus has received full authority to take the gospel anywhere. That is, all of creation is his. There is nowhere that his disciples might go now that is not under his supreme authority or, or lordship. Okay, so that's a confidence bill. You can go anywhere to do this. It's all under my authority I've been given from the Father. The second confidence builder is at the end of verse 20, where we learn that wherever we do go to fulfill Jesus' mission for worldwide missions, he will always be with us to the end of the age. Okay, and so you've got the way this text is arranged. You've got the setting, verses 16 and 17, and then, then you've got these two confidence builders around what would be the central thrust or point of this great commission. And so I want to look with you for the majority of our time at the central point of the great commission. It's found in verses 19 and 20. Think the central point is found in one main concept that rises to the surface. If you're looking in your Bible, this is stressed grammatically, and it's found in verse 19. The one main point is found in the one and only command that Jesus gives. And that command, although obscured from, by some of the English translations, uh, is found in the very heart of the Great Commission. It's found in these words, make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. In case you don't listen to any more of this sermon, that is exactly what Jesus wants from you, to make disciples of all nations. Here the verb, the command, make disciples, comes from the noun disciple. 
That's a word that's found all throughout the New Testament. The word uh, disciple is used to talk about those who are adherents or pupils or apprentices of a leader or teacher. Okay, and so when this word disciple is used in conjunction with Jesus, it basically means what we might think of today as a Christian, one who is an, an adherent, a pupil, a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a Christian. Okay, so the way this text goes is uh, the 11 are actively to make disciples. I think from other texts in the New Testament, we know how one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. The way one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ is they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they repent or turn from their sins. They say, you know, I don't want these things anymore. And so it involves repenting of sin and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that because this text follows right after one of the core components of the gospel, what does the gospel involve? It involves Jesus' Jesus's death, right, and his resurrection for our sins. It's the gospel. Because this comes right after one of the core parts. Uh, the gospel has now been accomplished. It's completed. This very commission then comes so powerfully from Christ because he has just risen from the dead. One of the interesting things that I saw in, in the Gospel of Matthew is earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, from time to time, uh, you know, someone will be healed or his disciples want to say something about Jesus, and he tells them, don't tell people about me. Okay, don't, don't, don't go and tell people about me. You know, my time has not come or it's not, you know, fulfilled or whatever. At this point, that is no longer the case. Now he has risen from the dead and everything changes. Now he has universal power and he, he commissions his disciples on a universal mission. They must go and tell others about him among every nation. As we're considering this one main command, make disciples, I think it'd be very easy for us to just think that this involves evangelism. And that's a part of it, that we, would, that we would push people toward conversion, that we would proclaim the gospel to them, hoping that they would come to know Jesus Christ. But that's just a part of it. That's not the whole mission. And that's where there are other important words in the Great Commission that I think tell us what it means to make disciples. There are three other words that I think show us how to go about making disciples. Okay, and so... I said we would answer two questions today. The first question is, what does Jesus want from us? He wants from us to make disciples. The second question is, how can we accomplish it? And that's where these other three words come in. The first word is the word go. First, we make disciples by going. Look down in your Bible at verse uh, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. This first word, go, is a participle. It modifies making disciples. It tells us how to do it. I think this first point should be obvious, right? Jesus did not intend his disciples to remain sequestered in the hills of Galilee. No, he desires for some of them, no doubt, to leave the hill and begin making disciples in the, the, the region and city of Galilee. 
There were tens of thousands of people there who needed to turn to Jesus as Messiah. And so, no doubt, Jesus wants some of them to, to, to focus on Galilee and to share the name of Jesus there. Others, perhaps, he wants them to go down to Ju Jerusalem and Judea and to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus' resurrection there. Still further, Jesus has in his mind, I think, for some of them to go to places in Asia Minor or Greece or Italy or Spain. Some will go to Egypt. Some, perhaps, even went to India and beyond. There was no place off limit they needed to go. Okay, so make disciples by going. But let me just stop and make some applications for us at Colonial for a moment. I think Jesus desires the same from us. He wants the members of Colonial Baptist Church to be involved in local and global mission. He desires for some of us to reach others in the Hampton Roads area. Men and women, there are hundreds of thousands of people to reach in the Hampton Roads area. For example, I, I did a little study. There, there are a quarter of a million people within a five-mile radius of our church building. 250,000, over 250, over a quarter of a million people within five miles of this building right here. In the school right next to us, there are 691 students, Centerville Elementary School. Those students come from over 350 families. Those families all live in the surrounding region right among us. How many of those families still need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how big did those numbers go from 691 and 350? How big did they go when we add all of the other regions of, say, high schools in the area? When we, when we add the seven high school regions in the city of Chesapeake or the 11 high school regions in the city of Virginia Beach, how many parents in those places need to know about Jesus Christ? How many grandparents? How many teenagers? Think about it. How many children need to know that if they do not turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. What you need to understand is that God has better prepared some of you to reach into these areas in the Hampton Roads more than any missionary or church planter who would draw up plans, pick out a spot on the map, and decide to come and live. Some of you are born and raised here. Others of you have lived here for a long time. You know this area so well. You know all of the cultural trends and values. You know where people hang out. You, you know where to find people who are open to talk. You would make a perfect disciple maker for Jesus Christ in Greenbrier or Hampton or Suffolk or Moyock or Great Bridge or Hickory, or Grassfield. And so I encourage you, Colonial Baptist Church, pick up your head and look around. Strategize and go. And when God gives you a believer in Jesus Christ, make a disciple. I think when we think of local mission, we should also think of the immigrant populations that are surrounding us in the Hampton Roads and, and are now a part of our population. There are 110,000 immigrants 
in the Hampton Roads area, according to a census that just occurred in 2020. There are 23,000 immigrants from the Philippines who have moved into the Hampton Roads area. There are 11,000 people from Arabic-speaking parts of the world. There are 10,000 immigrants that have moved here from French-speaking parts of the world. The largest countries of origin represented in our cities are the Philippines, India, Vietnam, Korea, China, Russia, and the Ukraine. And men and women, the, the immigrant population in the Hampton Roads is exploding. It's moving at two or three times faster than the pace of native population growth. Along these lines, I just encourage you, God is doing some amazing things behind the scenes at Colonial Baptist Church during a pandemic. I'll be bringing you up to speed on some of what God is doing, but God is doing amazing works among the immigrant population, and he is using parts of our body to reach into these areas and places like we have not seen before. To me, it's amazing what God can do, right, even during a pandemic. And so God perhaps wants you to be involved in local mission and in using your gifts and your training, your background to reach your neighbor for the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus also desires for some of us to go to other parts of the world where the gospel isn't. There are people in our assembly who are responding to go to dark places like Salt Lake City, Utah, to minister among the Mormon. They're selling their houses. And they're going. This is currently happening in Colonial Baptist Church. There are others among our assembly who've, who picked up the, the charge of the Great Commission. They're going to Islamic countries like Pakistan and another location in Central Asia that we won't say from the pulpit. He sent some of our members to Africa, others to the burned-over, gospel-rejecting city of London in England who desperately needs to hear and receive the gospel. And men and women, God is not done with, lo with global mission in our church either. He's just talking to some with someone in our assembly, for instance, who now has this burden to minister to Arabic-speaking countries in the world. Perhaps he's stirring others to, to go beyond our neighborhood to the nations. Regardless of location, we must all make disciples by going with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's more to learn in the text. I said there are three key words to tell us how. The second one is one that we find very appropriate for today. It's in the middle of verse 19. Start at the beginning. It says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second way we make disciples is through baptizing new followers of Jesus Christ. I think this is a special way to initiate new disciples of Jesus. And this is something that we wanted to partake in today, but we will do so, Lord willing, next week. We have, I think, seven people so far lining up to be baptized. And so since we're planning baptism next week, I want to slow down and I want to look at baptism. And I want to answer just a few questions with you about baptism uh, from this text and from the rest of the New Testament. There, there are, let's see, four questions I want to answer. First, what is baptism? 
What is baptism? In the first century, baptism was a rite of initiation where one declared his or her loyalty to a master or a teacher. Perhaps you've been reading through your New Testament scriptures before, and you'd see that there were baptisms of different people and different leaders. It was a rite of initiation where someone declared their loyalty to a master or teacher. The Greek word for baptize means to plunge or immerse under water. And it's often used in the New Testament of uh, being immersed under water to demonstrate loyalty or willingness to a particular teacher in that person, that human being was also God. His name is Jesus. So in that sense, baptism is uh, baptism in the name of Jesus is a pledge that you will follow Jesus and that you've already believed in him and you've repented or turned from your sins. Some denominations, when they talk about baptism, they say that baptism actually imparts saving grace to the recipient, but I don't think the New Testament demonstrates that at all. The New Testament actually systematically teaches that baptism will not save anyone. What saves is believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and repenting of your sin. You say, well, where do you find that preacher? Do you guys know Romans 1.16? A great text. Romans 1.16, Paul the apostle says this. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to, to salvation. To everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. I just messed it up. <laughs> but you, you get the point. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to both Jew and the Greek. In that text, it, it, it's very clear what the Apostle Paul is saying brings salvation. He, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for sins because it is the power of God to salvation. Okay, you got it? So the gospel of Jesus brings salvation, and we know how that is possible. You just keep reading the text. It's for everyone who believes. And so that's what you have to do. You have to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if you are to be saved or delivered from your sins. Baptism does not save you. Baptism happens after salvation as a step of Christian obedience. So who should be baptized? Believers in Jesus Christ, those who've turned to Jesus for their sins. That's what baptism is. Now, what does it picture? When we conduct baptisms at Colonial Baptist Church, we do so by immersion. Put you under the water and we bring you back up. We do this because I think that's what the original word meant. Baptized meant to immerse under water. And we do it as well because it's clearly implied in other places in the New Testament. I think of Acts chapter 8. You remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian? Ethiopian eunuch? Ethiopian's going through the wilderness, and he's got a, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading it, and God sends Philip down there. And so Philip runs up to the chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I understand this unless someone explain it to me? And so Philip begins to show him that these texts that he was reading about someone who would come and whose life would be taken away from him, that those texts in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament were referring to Jesus. And so the Ethiopian believes 
in Jesus Christ. And then he looks out his chariot, and he sees a body of water. And he asks Philip, he says, what prevents me now from being baptized? You remember this? It's a great story. I use it often as I talk to people about baptism. I don't think the Ethiopian sees a little vial of water on the ground that can be used to sprinkle him. He does not say, hey, I've got a canister or a jug of water here in my chariot. Can you use this to just pour it over me? No, he sees a body of water outside of the chariot and asks Philip to go down with him into the water to be baptized. Okay, now we prefer immersion for another reason. We prefer immersion because of what it pictures. What does it symbolize? Being baptized by immersion best captures the symbolism of being of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as seven people will be plunged under the water next week to, to and then rise up again, right? And I will do it quicker than that transition I just said. <laughs> be plunged under the water to rise up again. So Jesus was plunged into death. But he emerged victorious. So when we participate in a Christian baptism, or when we see another person do that, and when they come out, up out of the water, there should be this moment of rejoicing for us. Our Savior did not remain dead. He arose. He, come out, he came out of the grave. And now we, as followers of his, his walk in newness of life for him. I remember uh, several years ago when I was a youth pastor in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, I saw the most memorable baptism that I've ever been a part of experiencing. I did not perform the baptism, but our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Tim Valentine, who actually used to be in this area for a while as well, performed the baptism. We had prepared as a staff for this baptism. He was going to baptize an elderly woman by the name of Jametta. And the reason we prepared for this is because Jametta really wanted to be baptized, but she was very fearful. I've got other stories about fearful baptisms, but uh, we'll just focus on Jametta's. And so we prepared for this, and so it was at the end of the service in the front of the auditorium. They had a little uh, baptistry there, and so Pastor Tim goes down into the water, and Jametta follows. And we had a few deacons there ready to help. Uh, with whatever would, would happen. So as he goes to baptize Jametta, you can see her, she's standing in the water, and, and as he gets a little farther along in, his, in, in the, the words he's going to say, he says, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father. And, and, and as he continues, you see her hand just start creeping up, and it grabs the outside of the baptistry. Okay, so she's She's got both hands on both sides of the baptistry. And Pastor, Pastor Tim is trying to baptize her. Okay, I baptize you. He goes to get out. She just grabs on. She won't let go. And so it's the, the most special moment I, I think I've ever seen a Christian baptism. And so he's still miked. Okay, but he begins to whisper to her and talk to her. He says, now Jametta. This is down in the south. So he's got a southern accent. Now Jametta. You know, we've talked to you about getting baptized and what that involves. And, you know, you know you can trust me. You're just going to be under the water for a second. He's telling her all this, and there's like there's 600 people watching this. 
And so she's like, he, he basically talks her into trying it again, okay? So he starts to this feeling. He says, uh, uh, I baptize you, my sister, in the name, and you can see her hands start up. He goes, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grabs her hand, and he puts her under the water. <laughs> and then she comes up out of the water, and she yells these words, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She was so thrilled that God had given her strength to be baptized. When we come up out of the water in baptism, when we see someone else, I think those same words should be on our minds. Jesus, 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 you did not remain defeated in death. You arose victorious, and you provide salvation for us. So baptism is a symbol. Our sins are forgiven because of our union with Jesus Christ. We have newness in our life. There's another question I would answer, and I'll just answer this one very quickly. Uh, why baptism? And I think it's because of some of the things I've told you already, and then I would add to that, Jesus commands you to be baptized as a follower of his. That's why. And that leads to one last question I want to consider with you for a moment since we're talking about baptism here, and that is when. When should people be baptized? I think this is a bit controversial in the contemporary church today, but I personally don't think it has to be that hard. I would say that the New Testament makes it clear. First, people must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, repent of their sins in order to be saved. After that point, baptism is something that should be done early in their discipleship. In other words, baptism is a key first step for a new disciple of Jesus Christ. One scholar said it this way. I agree with him. He says, after repenting and believing, baptism is the first command Jesus' followers are called to obey. And I agree for a few reasons. I want to show you both of these two reasons. I think it should come very early on as a first step of Christian obedience. First, I think it should be done early because every example of a person being baptized in your New Testament Scripture in the name of Jesus that gives you any information about them has them being baptized as soon as they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, I could take you to a bunch of different places in the New Testament to show you that, but just turn over to Acts 2. Okay, we're going to just look at a few examples in Acts 2. Okay? And I just want to make the point, I think baptism is something that you should do as a follower of Jesus Christ early on in your discipleship. Okay, so we go to Acts 2, and of course what's happening in Acts 2, Peter is preaching powerfully in Jerusalem. And he's preaching to thousands of people. And he's primarily talking to a Jewish audience in the steps of the temple, and he says, you, uh, he says, God sent his son Jesus here, and you crucified him by the hands of unlawful men. And as Peter is preaching, many in the crowd are greatly convicted about their sin. Look at verse 37. It's one of the most vivid descriptions of conviction I think I see anywhere in the Bible. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Ever felt convicted like that before? It's like, whoa. <laughs> Pastor, could you take the, the knife out of my heart? They were cut to the heart, 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay, so the preachers finished his sermon on the life of the name of Jesus Christ and how you must believe in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And they asked, what should we do? Notice his answer. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, I think, to the church. It's a clear passage that talks about baptism occurring very early on, after repentance, after believing in Jesus, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We could go to Acts 8, and I could show you the Ethiopian eunuch. We won't turn there. I've already referred to that a little bit. I could go to other places like Acts 10 and 19 that I think have the same pattern, faith and then baptism after. But I will go to one other text with you. Go to Acts 16. Acts 16, there are actually two occurrences here, and this is uh, Paul in the city of Philippi. If you remember what we're doing here, we're, we're answering the question, when should a believer be baptized? And I'm arguing it should be very early on in their Christian discipleship. Acts 16, uh, in verses 14 and 15, Paul's in the city of Philippi, and one of the first converts there is a woman by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple. Notice what happens with her in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Okay, so you got that foundation. She's a worshiper of God. Then the Lord opened her heart. She becomes a convert in Jesus Christ. To pay attention to what Paul, what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. She wants to show Christian hospitality after her baptism, which occurs in this narrative. Just slip down to verse 29, and you'll see another convert in the city of Philippi who comes to know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. Paul and Silas are in jail, and God delivers them. But then the they stay in the jail. You remember this? And the jailer was concerned. Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all those who were in his house, and he, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so you ask me, why do you think Baptism normally occurs in the life of a disciple very early on. I would say every example that I find in the New Testament that gives any length of description about someone's baptism has them 
believing, repenting, and then very early on, following up by being baptized. Now go back to Matthew 28. Okay, there's another reason I think baptism should occur early on in the Christian discipleship process, and that is because of the order of the, the words we're looking at. He says, go therefore and make disciples, and then he's going to tell us how. Baptizing them, verse, verse 19, and then verse 20, teaching them. That's the next word we're going to look at in just a second. But the order of the words go, baptizing, then teaching. Now, in the contemporary church today, we tend to think of teaching as the first need. But here Jesus puts baptizing first and then teaching. We tend to think of baptizing as a graduation ceremony. Like you'd like do all the work, you get all the doctrine in, do all the stuff, and then we're going to graduate you by baptizing. However, the New Testament puts it more like an initiation. It's early. And I think all of this is important because the New Testament does not have any category for a private or a secret follower of Jesus Christ who refuses to take his faith and make it public. And of course, baptism is one of the primary ways, the best way to tell other people that in your heart you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died in your place, and he rose again for your sins. And so as we have opportunity, I think we should encourage other Christians who have not yet been baptized to do so. Now, back in our text, we learned something about baptism. In this text, it's just so rich, I want you to see. It says, baptizing them, verse 19, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a powerful testimony to the deity of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons. This text is the way it said, one name, the name, baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's also amazing that Jesus puts his name there, right in the middle between Father and Spirit. It's an extraordinary testimony. Now the resurrection has occurred. The mission is clear. You go and you tell everyone the Son of God has risen again for their sins. And so in our text, there's one main concept, right? Make disciples. How? By going, by baptizing people as followers of Jesus Christ, but there's one last aspect in verse 20. Look with me there. Teaching them, that's the third one, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Here we're to be teaching others to observe what Jesus has commanded. And the key there is to observe it. To be a disciple involves more than just understanding one's teaching. It's more than just indoctrinating someone. I want you to know all the theologies. I want you to be able to defend all of this. Here, I think what the, the point that is being made is that faith is, that is not lived out in everyday behavior is not genuine faith. One man said it this way. He says, the emphasis in this text is not simply on acquiring knowledge, 
Not that. He says, the distinguishing feature is always that disciples are able to obey and to conform their lives to the teaching of Jesus. So in this text, we're told exactly what we must follow. Everything that Jesus commands. There's a lot I could say about this as well, but I've preached for a good amount of time. Here, I guess I'll just say that normally when the word commands or commandment is used by Matthew in his gospel, it's talking about Moses. What Moses commands, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, but here those things give way because they lead to Jesus' commands. So as we go and we make new disciples and we teach them to put into practice, we should teach them to put into practice everything that Jesus commands. I think this is why perhaps as, uh, as you look to church history, it's very interesting to me that in church history, one of the primary functions of the Gospel of Matthew in the first few centuries of the church was that the Gospel of Matthew became a manual for Christian discipleship. And I thought, how appropriate. Because in this gospel, we learn what Jesus did and what he taught. And so I think it would be wonderful for us as contemporary believers, we would do well to take this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and use it as a manual to teach new disciples here how to follow Jesus Christ. So I'm basically done in the sermon, but I, 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 I end by asking you, how much are you contributing to the mission and the vision of Jesus. Perhaps you've been overwhelmed with the busyness and the challenges of life. You've lost focus these last weeks or months and you don't know where to begin. Well, in this text, we have returned to the basics to find that one thing that Jesus really wants you to do the central point of Jesus' plan is to make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Who can you begin to disciple today? Let's close in prayer. Father, we rejoice in the evidence signs that you are working among the members of Colonial Baptist Church. To think of seven people getting baptized next week is so encouraging, and it points us forward. It makes us think about how the Great Commission is being fulfilled by the members of our assembly. But, Father, when we think of one quarter of a million people living within a five-mile radius of our church, when we think of hundreds of thousands of people who do not know Jesus Christ, who have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we plead with you, Father, to make us more effective. Make us more effective to do the one thing that you are calling for us to do. Father, I would pray for those in our body who are experiencing overwhelming fatigue or discouragement at this time, or perhaps you're just confused about what the proper priorities would be. I pray that they would see afresh and again that one thing you want us to do. 
to fulfill your mission. That is to make disciples by going, by baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then by teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commands us. Lord, help us be a disciple-making church, we pray, for your glory until Christ returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.